0: When you have a Bible, or if you've already got one, open up to Mark chapter one. Mark chapter one. That's right, people. It's the New Testament. New Testament. <laughs> that's right, man. You are right to be excited about the New Testament. Let me tell you something. Um, for months now, even actually before our Sunday gatherings began in proper, we've been working through something that we've called the year of biblical literacy. Next week, the teaching aspect of the, the series, the year of biblical literacy, will come to a close. And then the following week, we're going to begin our vision series for the following uh, year. So before that, before we get to all that, we wanted to spend a couple of weeks to talk about where all these months uh, in Israel's story, in the wisdom literature, in the prophets, in the story of exile, uh, where, where has all that been headed within the meta narrative of the biblical story? And we're going to spend a couple of weeks talking about Jesus and the kingdom of God. Now, the plan for this evening is to look at two verses, that's it. In Mark chapter 1, and then to develop a sort of broad bird's eye view of this complex idea that Jesus called the kingdom. Because though we use the term often in church vernacular, and though Jesus taught and preached on the kingdom more than any other thing, the term still remains sometimes shrouded in mystery, or it's debated, or there's a tremendous amount of ambiguity. And think about this if the prayer of Van City Church is truly, Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then it matters greatly that we actually understand what it is that we're asking for when we pray such a thing. So some of this evening will be a bit dense, history, seminary-ish stuff, forgive me, but we'll also get to what this means for you and I. So please, if you can, wake up, pay attention, shake your brain out of that distracted haze in which we all live week to week and try to at least act like you're listening. It does a lot for me personally and my self-esteem. Sound good? You guys ready great all right let's get to work mark chapter 1 let's look at verse 14 together after john was put in prison jesus went into galilee proclaiming the good news of god pause for a moment now that to say John, who's the the Baptist, the baptizer, if you like, is locked up for all his troublemaking or for speaking truth to the political power of his day, if you know the story. And immediately thereafter, this guy called Jesus steps into the scene, and he arrives in, of all places, Galilee, which is this backwater, obscure little corner of the empire. And in the text, Jesus is, quote, proclaiming the good news of God. This phrase, proclaiming the good news of God, is actually a quote from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61. The spirit of sovereign Yahweh is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Now notice, this prophecy is about a coming of anointed one or more literally in hebrew a coming messiah and this messiah will usher in a new way of things in which yahweh is sovereign meaning yahweh is actually king now mark in chapter one of this biography of jesus he's writing is saying that these things spoken of in isaiah hundreds of years prior the proclaiming of the good news to the poor the healing of the brokenhearted the releasing of prisoners from darkness all of this is finally coming to fruition in and through whom Jesus. Way to go. That All that money on Bible college didn't go to waste. That's right. Mark, uh, by a clever literary means that accounts for the Hebrew Scriptures, is saying that Jesus is this anointed one, the one on whom Yahweh's anointing is, or Messiah, of whom Isaiah wrote. Now, this phrase we read in verse 14, the good news, is actually one word in Greek, and it's euangelion. Can you say euangelion? Yeah, okay, great, man. You guys are awesome tonight. It's whoever's been here before, forget those guys. You guys are repeating everything. It's awesome. Keep up the good work. Now, uh, that word, euangelion, it can be translated as good news, or it's where we get the word gospel, or literally, it's an announcement. And this begs the question, what is Jesus' euangelion or announcement? Well, it's right here in Mark 1. Let's read verse 15. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is Mark's summary of jesus gospel or good news or announcement this is the message of jesus encapsulated in a single terse little paragraph and succinct though it may be we can parse the summary out in two halves firstly there's the announcement the time has come the kingdom of god has come near and the second half is the call to respond what do you do about it repent and believe in the euangelion or in the good news But we obviously don't want to stop there. That would be too easy. So let's zero in on it a bit further and take each half in turn, starting with the announcement. So in order to unpack exactly what Jesus is getting at with this announcement that the kingdom of God has come near, it behooves us to sort of posit three different questions. And the first is this, what is the kingdom of God? What the heck is this thing that we're on about all the time? The phrase could be translated, God's rule. Or another way of putting it is God's reign. Put simply, the kingdom of God is the area of God's active and realized rule. Meaning that the kingdom is the act of exercising of God's power and God's authority. In fact, you might paraphrase the summary of Jesus' message thusly. Uh, The world is under a new authority. And a new rule, a new king is in power. Satan and his henchmen have been dethroned. A new society is erupting from the seams of the old one. It is time for justice. It is time for healing. It's time for an entirely new way of life. The best definition of God's kingdom that I know of comes from Jesus himself, who's something of an authority on the topic, and uh, his collection of teachings that we call the Sermon on the Mount. It shows up in an unlikely place or one that you don't notice upon first reading. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, and he prays, your kingdom come, your what? Will be done. Uh, where? On earth as it is in heaven. Now, this is a device employed in Hebrew poetry called parallelism, which is just uh, Two different ways of saying the exact same statement meaning that when jesus prays your kingdom come he's essentially saying the same exact thing as your will be done these two things mean the same thing the kingdom of god is the space in which god's will is done or where god what god wants to happen actually happens this could be realized in a man or a woman it could be realized in a child or in a neighborhood or in a city or a school system or a workplace Uh, One day, it will be realized across the entire cosmos. It is a space in which God is actually on the throne. God is king. He's actively exercising his power and authority to the degree that what he wants to happen is actually happening on earth as it is in heaven, which draws our attention to a significant difference between heaven and earth. Heaven, in the story of the scriptures anyway, is the invisible space all around you basically. In fact, the same exact word is used for sky or outer space or even air at times. That's how close heaven is or God's space is. And in this invisible space, the scriptures call heaven, God's will is always done. God is in control. Earth, on the other hand, is a world that you and I inhabit in which God's will is not always done, in which God is in charge but not always in meticulous control. Yes, sometimes what God wants to happen, happens. Where there is justice and generosity and kindness, peace, mercy, God's rule is realized. But not always. There's also hate and violence, injustice, war, child abuse, things that God does not want to happen. And this is because on earth there are other wills at work. There's the will of spiritual beings, uh, angels, demons, Satan's, what the Old Testament frankly calls gods with the lowercase g. Uh, There's my will, your will, and there's the chaotic circumstance that unfolds by the activation of all of our wills in this infinitely complex fall of dominoes, uh, what scientists call chaos theory. And these other wills, not to mention their outcomes, are often in conflict with or at times utterly against the vision of God for the peace and the flourishing of the universe. These wills are often at war with God's will. For the world and you and i unfortunately live on earth which is this place that's sort of stuck between the two warring wills so here in mark's gospel jesus proclaims that all of that will one day change the bifurcation between heaven and earth is changing now god's rule has come near and it's in both the present in the here and now and it's in the future or in the not yet In fact, uh, one German scholar I read this week proposed a helpful analogy might come from World War II. So you have D-Day, and then you have V-E Day, or Victory in Europe Day. D-Day, from a strategic point of view, was not only the turning point in the war, it was sort of the decisive blow to the Third Reich, uh, ensuring that Germany would be defeated. It was just a matter of time. Even so, it was a long, hard, bloody road to get to V-E Day, or Victory in Europe Day, a year or so Later, to be exact. In the same way, Jesus' death and resurrection is the decisive death blow to Satan and the power of darkness, but it is a long, hard road to get to that realization across the entire universe. So because of this, Jesus talks uh, constantly in stories or in parables, the gospel calls them, in order to sort of assist His audience in understanding what the kingdom is actually like. For example, Jesus likens the kingdom to a small seed, if you know the famous parable. Sure, it starts really, really tiny, but give it time, and it's going to grow, and it's going to grow, and it's going to spread. And he says this because this is precisely the opposite of what his Jewish audience had anticipated. They all believed the kingdom would come all at once. Now, given the, important, the importance of this concept Uh, of the kingdom of God and in order to further dispel lingering confusion surrounding it, I want to take just a little tangent, bear with me, and talk about what the kingdom of God is not. Forgive the contrarian in me, but it's fun. Now, To clarify, each of the following things are not necessarily entirely mistaken. Some of them have an element of truth in them, but they are all, at best, I think, missing the mark. The first misconception that I hear all the time is that the kingdom of God is heaven, or the place that you go when you die. And it probably comes from a misreading of matthew's gospel in which the author favors the term kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of god matthew uh, writes to a conservative jewish audience who refrained from speaking aloud the name of god so heaven becomes a pseudonym for god in matthew's context in fact the new testament authors never use the word heaven to refer to some place that you go when you die and that term you know go to heaven when you die is completely absent from all of scriptures of course the idea of being in god's presence after dying is absolutely represented in the bible but it shows up in different language language like with the lord In the Scriptures, heaven always means God's dwelling place or where God is or the place where God's will is done uh, frequently. This means that Jesus' kingdom vision is actually a very earthy thing. So notice that when Jesus prays, he does not pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and mean by that, make things nice until we get out of here and go somewhere else. Um, He doesn't mean give us robes and harps so that it will be more like heaven here right now. Jesus' vision for the kingdom is to see God's will accomplished here. That message resounds across the pages of the entire biblical story. It comes to beautiful culmination at the close of Revelation. Read the story. It ends not somewhere else but here on earth in a beautiful garden-like city. So followers of Jesus should be concerned for absolutely the renewal of humanity but also for care of the environment and for the animal kingdom and everything in between so the danger with thinking of the kingdom of god as heaven is that uh, it creates in our minds the illusion that the kingdom is somewhere else um, and entirely in the future at that this is a tragic mistake because the kingdom is about the future yes absolutely but it's also about right here and right now now the second misconception about the kingdom of god i think is that the kingdom of god is the church Um, This, too, is a dangerous misconception because it often creates in our minds, consciously or subconsciously, unrealistic expectations for what the church can be. And yes, God's plan to rescue the world has always come through a people, but if you know the story, and if you've been (laughs) with us for a while now, uh, in the story, the people fail a lot, constantly, all the time. It's kind of like this running gag or a motif, if you want to... Be literary about it um, ultimately god's rescuing work comes to fruition in a person in a single person jesus of nazareth and we as the church absolutely act as partners in jesus rescuing work continuing on through history but we are not jesus i am not jesus to clarify i run into that's that's another misconception whole nother thing when uh when the onus of responsibility for saving the world falls entirely on the church and you know if you know me at all you know i believe we have an absolutely active role to play in that but when it falls entirely on the church the church just can't cope um it it bows and buckles under this very unmanageable weight people become disillusioned they become embittered in reality the church plays a role in the solution to evil and to the fall, but it also contributes to the problem itself, because there are people here, and people miss the mark all the time. The next misconception about the kingdom is that it is socio-political in nature. Now, interestingly, this misconception tends to appear amongst two very different crowds. You have the sort of mainline progressive denominations that are all about bringing the kingdom through acts of social justice. And then the other crowd is the right-wing conservative like Jerry Falwell crowd who suppose that the kingdom can be established by passing laws or with the right politicians and political party. Now, both groups assume that the way forward is a political one. And the problem then becomes that Jesus himself did not adopt a political strategy of any kind. In fact, Jesus said almost nothing about the burning political issues of his day. Jewish freedom from Rome, exorbitant taxation, the economic theory that led to poverty, and as we discussed in detail just a few weeks ago in our conversation about the kingdom and the empire, the kingdom of God functions entirely different than the role of the state. The kingdom of God functions with power under, or sort of radical, self-sacrificial love for others, including enemies. Um, Power over is different. It's coercive. It's uh, coercing behavior with rules and with the threat of punishment. That's the way of the state and politics. That to say, the kingdom cannot be legislated. uh, It cannot be imposed on culture via law and government. And one more, one more final misconception about the kingdom of God is that it is entirely spiritual. I've often heard folks talk about the kingdom of God as it was some sort of like individualistic, mystic, uh, personal, in your heart sort of thing. It dates all the way back to the monastic movement of the 4th century on up to the writings of Tolstoy who famously wrote the book The Kingdom of God is Within You, um, which his influence carried on into the late 1800s. It was a tremendous influence on Gandhi himself and later Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and on and on. Now, of course, the, the personal interconnectedness of you and Jesus is a beautiful, unique sort of thing. But with all due respect, I think that you need a vision of God's kingdom that's a whole lot bigger than you are. Um, and a lot bigger than your personal relationship with Jesus. Silence and solitude and time away from the rush and the busyness of life, just you and the Spirit of God, is absolutely essential. I believe that, and we'll talk about that a ton in the fall. But God's vision for a redeemed cosmos will cover a tad more than your morning quiet time, I think. Um, Okay, tangent over about what the kingdom is not. Are you still with me? I thought that was helpful. It was fun for me. Just nod your head and act like you enjoyed it as well. Um, With what I hope is a better picture of what the kingdom is and what the kingdom is not, let's draw our attention back to Jesus' announcement or his euangelion and talk about what he means by the kingdom coming near. Some of your Bibles probably translate that line, the kingdom of God has come near, as is at hand. Others flat out write, the kingdom is here. Um, That phrase can be translated as, imminent or another way of saying is that it is arriving or it is within reach. A helpful analogy that I've heard is the road trip. Um, So many of you guys know this for more than a decade uh, of my life. Road trip was kind of the thing that I did every day. I used to tour around playing music full time, um, which meant among other things that you kind of live in a 15 passenger van, You spend more time in the 15 passenger van than just about anywhere else. And living in a van sort of does strange things to a person um in order to like stave off cabin fever or i guess because of cabin fever however you want to put it we we eventually started taking the things like um we would play games of uno you you know the game uno right with the cars where the the first person out got to use a bb gun to shoot the last person in um and you've never seen people play uno with such tenacity so much is at stake uh And it it does things to people. Long road trips do things to a person's mind, especially for months and months at a time. Abby, uh, my wife, she spent a couple of years traveling around with us. And I have this vivid memory of us all being in the van one late night, like an overnight drive. And uh, Mike, who's up there running the slides, um, was setting his clothes on fire inside the van. And we were all cheering him on, like, well, I'll let it burn. Quit trying to put it out. And, uh, and Abby stopped and asked, like, out loud, what, did, what has happened to us? How did, how did we get to this place? This is no longer okay. Anyway, um, arson and, and voluntary violence aside, imagine a road trip. Imagine a normal people road trip. Um, And you kind of have this excitement of visiting a new place. There's uh, sometimes mystery surrounding exactly what it might be like or what might happen along the way. When I first started uh, traveling with the the band, there was no smartphone. In fact, none of us had cell phones at all. We used uh, calling cards. You guys remember those? You'd have to call, collect, Mom, we're still alive. See you in a month. Um, so there were no smartphones, there were no cell phones, we didn't have GPS. There wasn't even MapQuest back then, which is an outdated thing. But, so we traveled all over the country using a, a, exclusively an atlas. You just had this giant thing on there and be like, oh, that's the city, I guess we'll try to drive in this direction. And the journey itself becomes this strange, unpredictable thing. You begin to search for and eventually notice identifying signs and landmarks, and it's like, I guess this is it, because it says the thing right there. And then you might uh, notice that the rural areas slowly give way to small towns, and you're like, people, civilization, it's working. And then you just stop and get out and say, have you heard of this city? We're trying to, and they'll go, oh yeah, you want to go down yonder around the bend. For for some reason, everyone's southern in my (laughs) paradigm. (laughs) and you realize, oh, you're, you're heading in the right direction. And, and then all of this culminates in this triumphant moment when you journey over city limits, you know you're in the right place and you can see on the horizon the city to which you were headed. It's in the distance, but it's visible just the same. And you start to th- say things like, there it is, or we made it, we're here. Now, of course, you aren't actually there yet um, you're still driving but the destination is in the distance and even so the destination is at hand it's imminent or it is near this is exactly what jesus is getting at when he says that the kingdom of god is at hand off in the distance but on the horizon and imminent and interestingly there are two words for time In the greek language you know jesus says the time has come there's the word uh chronos where we get the english word chronology and that just means like time as in like what time is it i don't have a watch never have you know what time is it the second word for time in greek is kairos and it refers to time as in um like a woman that's nine months pregnant says to her husband it's time or you know the the addict who's sort of stumbling through life on the brink of death their family sits them down and says it is time something has to change This uh, is a unique moment to which events have been en route, and it is important. It's like a crux moment. Kairos, that word for time, is a word Jesus uses in Mark when he says, the kairos has come, the kingdom has come near. And that is a very loaded thing to say. That is a very uh, shocking announcement, to say the least, to Jesus' audience. Now, that covers some of the announcement portion of the text. Before we end, let's turn our attention to the latter half, which is the call to Respond, or put another way, what does this mean for you and I? If you haven't noticed, uh, we, are, we aren't first century Jews, and this isn't Galilee, to my best estimation. So, what is our responsibility in responding to this UN galleon all this time later? One scholar said of Jesus' words, This is a message that demands a response. If the kingdom of God has come near, and if the king himself is already present, then life itself must change. The old lifestyle of indifference to God and His will must be abandoned. Loyalty to the King must become our all-encompassing effort. The old self-centered life must be rejected in full as we assume our true mantle as faithful subjects to the King. This message, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, demands a response and an immediate one at that. That message uh, is right in front of us on Jesus' lips, how to respond. Repent and believe the good news. Now, the word repent, I realize, comes with quite a bit of baggage in church culture, if you've been around for any length of time. Um, It's metaneo in in Greek. It it combines two words. So there's meta, which means renew and restore, and then there's noeo, which means to think or literally Metanoeo means to think about or to change one's mind. Or you could interpret the word by saying to think about the world in an entirely different way. So think about this. God is up to something in the universe. As per Jesus' proclamation, he is involved. And because of that, listen, you and I have to rethink everything that we know about the world. The old lifestyle of indifference to God must be abandoned new testament scholar nt Wright translates that text give up your agenda and trust me for mine and make no mistake you absolutely have an agenda i i know that i do you and i both have something that we're chasing after sometimes it's in line with jesus vision and other times it's not at all something we all have something that demands our attention or our passion or our drive our determination and understand this the sobering call of jesus is that insofar as these agendas of ours conflict with jesus kingdom vision for humanity and the world we have to give them up or you can't follow jesus and more than that they must not only be given up but they must be put to death altogether if this thing after which you continually chase does not fit into jesus kingdom vision it can't be a part of jesus kingdom vision nor of jesus himself and as sobering as a wake-up call as this is i'm not sure we tend to think it through to each of its logical conclusions or at least i know i don't maybe it's just me but this means that these agendas of ours outside of jesus vision must garner no more of our attention These other things that you chase after that are not of the kingdom, Jesus is saying don't give them your time, don't give them your money, don't give them your emotional energy, don't give them your talents or your abilities or your personality or your pain or your hope. Do not squander your lives, in other words. Do not expend your life only to step back in finality and behold that everything that you've ever accomplished will end up as trash and your life comes down to nothing. How many of you uh, know, I'm sure, Uh, have known someone in your lifetime who has died or or you know someone who right now as we stand here and talk is dying how how many of you have seen that face to face and and you and I are actually on our way there ourselves On on a long enough timeline the survival rate for everyone will drop to zero and along this mockingly short timeline we have to ask ourselves, are are we going to waste the time that we have on the American dream, for example, on creature comforts or uh, a, a nicer house or financial stability? Will we waste this infinitesimal blink on the chasing after significance through some idea of fame or hedonism or relationships or self-satisfaction. You, each one of you who are made in God's image, those of you who are here and you follow King Jesus, you have the spirit of God inside you, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And you want a nicer house and that's it? Are freaking kidding me? You want more followers on Instagram? That's our aspiration. Yes, or a second car, or a promotion. That's the thing that we're chasing after. In and of itself, these things can contribute to a better whole. Sure, but in and of themselves, that's it. The ability to do whatever you want—that's the aspiration. And when you think about it, repentance is about so much more than just the abandonment of sin. I think most of us, myself included, hear repentance, and you think it's about relinquishing sin or giving up this bad thing that that you do. And it is about that, but it's about much more. This is about the complete and utter giving up of any and everything that you want in as far as it does not align with what Jesus wants. Jesus is saying that chasing after the things of this age Is like polishing the brass on the Titanic. Don't don't live for an age that's passing away. Live for an age that's coming to bear on the entire cosmos. And understand me when I say this. I don't mean that a day is coming when God is going to blow up the world and thus none of this really matters. Let's all just white-knuckle it until Jesus floats us all up into the sky and we get out of here anyway. What I am saying is that if you believe in a coming day when Jesus will heal this world, And if you believe that God has called us to work in ushering in glimpses of that future in the here and now, then it is absolutely crucial that our passions and pursuits look like the passions and pursuits of Jesus, lest they be altogether wasted. In the coming kingdom, it will not matter who had the most money or the most followers or the better job or the promotion or the coolest outfit or the most stamps in their passport or the most comfortable setup, but who chased after and lived for justice and peace and mercy and the perpetual beating back of Satan and his kingdom. And this begs another uh, more horrifying question, which is, what do you need to give up in order to follow Jesus? I suspect there's always something. What is there in your life right now, tonight, that in order to follow Jesus, you are being asked to set down or to relinquish or to abandon altogether and for good? Whether that's tangible uh, or whether it's completely intangible, something in your habits or your disposition or your pride or something you keep going back to. And finally, this, this call of Jesus, repent and believe, the good news, this response that he's asking for, is repentance and belief. And that word uh, belief in Greek is kind of a slippery slippery sort of word that evades translation. In fact, the word believe is probably an altogether inappropriate rendering for many of us, because as Westerners, maybe it's just me, but a lot of us tend to equate belief with intellectual understanding, as in, oh, I believe that uh, the Mesozoic era followed the Permian period. It's divided into three different epochs: the Triassic, the Jurassic, and the Cretaceous time period, if you know anything about dinosaurs. Anytime I have an excuse to talk about dinosaurs, it's a moral victory for me. But uh, that sort of thing, I, I believe that. You know, it's, it's something that transpires entirely in my mind. Some scholars have argued that a better translation for the word believe here might be trust, as in turn from your old agenda and trust the good news. This makes sense, given that every one of you are currently trusting in someone or something for your worldview. You know that, right? Whether it's the news media, or your political party, or your biology professor, or your upbringing, or your heritage, or your life experience, or a pastor, or a personality, a book that you read, someone that you follow on the internet, all of you are trusting someone or something for your view of ultimate reality, and morality, what's wrong and what's right, what matters and what does not matter. And here stands Jesus with this deliberately subversive invitation, trust me instead. Instead of all these things, trust me. Jesus is saying, my vision for the world is not a vision for the world. It is the vision for the future. Trust me. It's not a state of belief in the mind alone, but it's a, an active Pursuit of trust. These are two very different things. You you know that, right? The latter, trust, must be realized outwardly. It's something that you do with your life. One can quite easily, for example, and, and quite comfortably, analyze statistics, read a report, and openly claim that the safest way to travel is by air. Studies seem to show it's quite another thing to actually board a plane and trust the data in practice. Trust is basically simply acting on what you believe to be true. Trust is acting on what you believe to be true. When Jesus demands belief, as in believe the good news, he doesn't mean intellectual understanding. I say like, yeah, in my head I think that that's right. I choose to believe that that's true. One New Testament author goes on to say that even, even demons have that sort of belief. Jesus is asking us to get on the airplane, so to speak. There's this ongoing conversation in, uh, in the Western church right now about the way that so many churches are theologically charismatic, which means that if you ask them what they believe about the Holy Spirit, they'll say, oh, we absolutely believe in the things of the Spirit, in healing, in, uh, in listening prayer, in prophecy. We believe in all those things. But they are functionally cessationist." Which means that to go to their churches, you would never know they believe any of those things, even a little bit. And if you ask, well, how are you making space for all these things that you believe in your Sunday gathering, for example? They'd say, oh, well, we don't. We don't make any space at all because that would be weird. And that sort of dissonance, being uh, theologically charismatic, yes, we believe in the things of the Spirit, but being functionally cessationist, we don't do anything about it. That sort of dissonance sounds absurd, but so many of us carry out our role in the kingdom the exact same way. I believe I have a responsibility in joining Jesus' vision, and I have a part to play in partnering with God for the renewal of all things, and then we ask, how are you doing that? I don't know. I guess I'm not. I guess I'm not doing it at all. We affirm the reality of God's coming kingdom in an intellectual sense. But if you want to see what we're actually giving ourselves over to, look at the way that we spend our time and our money. And those two things will be evidence enough. And please don't misunderstand me. I am in no way saying that if you don't work at a church or if you aren't fundraising to go be a missionary in Uganda, then you're somehow not part of the kingdom. If you've been here any length of time, you know that we believe you can realize your active role in partnering with God as a parent, uh, as a teacher, as a waiter, as an artist, as a nurse, the owner of 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 a business startup, whatever it might be. And the reality of where you're actually headed may be something altogether different. It might be the same across the board. It may take a great deal of time. Just last Sunday, I was having this conversation with a young man who's part of our community and he has this beautiful vision for doing justice for the poor. He has a plan to bring about healing and partnering God this way. And I was here and I was really inspired. I was like, that's amazing, do that. Do that right now, I wanna tell a story about it and act like I had something to do with it, you know? and he's like, oh, that, that's going to take years. It's going to take a long time. In the meantime, I'm doing this and hopefully that will get me on the path to doing this other thing. He realized that he's not there yet, but he's in route to the right thing and the now is not wasted time. So maybe a question to ask is, are you on your way? Now, if you've yet to begin following Jesus at all, then the response to this message is to begin doing exactly that. In just a week, like Patrick said, it will be Baptism Sunday, and what the wedding ceremony is to marriage, baptism is to discipleship to Jesus. So the waters will be open, and more than that, Jesus will readily accept you as his apprentice anytime, this very moment, tonight, when you get home, whether it's Baptism Sunday or not. But for those of you who are already following Jesus, which I suspect is probably the majority of people in this room, there are two things that you should know. First, think about this. The call to respond, uh, repent, and believe is actually a command. And secondly, in Greek bear with me for a second, Uh, that call is in the present imperfect tense. Now, don't tune out. That just means that this is an ongoing act. It's something that is not just a one-time thing. It happens again and again and again. Listen to me. Do not imagine repentance and following Jesus as something that happened years ago. It's something that you did at camp or at the end of a church gathering or alone with a friend who prayed for you. The church is to be a people of ongoing trust and repentance day in and day out. Anyone that's been married for more than a few years realizes that after the infatuation and the wild passions sort of fade naturally the way that they do, they do, um, the opportunity presents itself. I didn't say that about my wife. I said that for your benefit. Um, (laughs) Or I said it from her perspective. Uh, After those things fade, the opportunity presents itself each and every new day to choose to love your husband or your wife again and again, and again, and it can be a difficult decision to make. Ask Abby about it later. Jesus' disciples are setting down their own agenda in order to take up the agenda of Jesus again, and again, and again, and again. Now, to wrap up, I want to bring up what the kingdom is not just one more time. Because if you notice, a common thread running through all those misconceptions about what the kingdom of God is and is not, a common thread is that what the kingdom isn't, those misconceptions, they all shrink the kingdom of God down to something smaller than it is. They err by belittling the kingdom, not by overstating it. They minimize the rule of Jesus. Think about it the kingdom as heaven makes Jesus the ruler of the future somewhere else. It says nothing about here and now. It says nothing about your job or your neighborhood or your family it minimizes the kingdom thinking of the kingdom as the church makes jesus the ruler of god's people which is true but his rule doesn't expand to culture at large what what about the developing world what about the economy what about trade and development has nothing to say to those things thinking of the kingdom as politics gives jesus rule over the political realm but not over your personal sexuality For example? What about the fact that on a coming day every man and woman will stand before Jesus and be judged for the things that they have done? End quote. Thinking of the kingdom as nothing more than a spiritual reality makes Jesus the ruler over your privatized little time and your heart. But what about the bulk of all of your life that you do not reading your Bible over a latte in the morning quietly with nice music playing? Is that not what y'all do? That's what I do. You should try it. It's great. Um so I wasn't making fun of you, I was making fun of myself. What about the rest of your time that happens outside of that? What do you do with the rest of your day? What you do with your money, what you do with your mind and your talent and your work. And interestingly, we all have a kingdom in which we rule. Think about it for a second. You may not think of yourself as someone who enjoys a set of luxurious options day in and day out, but most of you here. You made a, a tremendous deal of choices to get here even this afternoon. Um, you picked out your clothes, for example, or you made decisions about what you would do with your time until you got here. You, you made a decision about coming here or not coming here or what you would eat during the day. You, you made choices about what you would say and not say, who you spent your time with, and you will do the same thing tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And I'm learning more and more and more that with each passing day and week and month and year, that the more I maintain meticulous rule over my own little kingdom, the less and less Jesus rules over my life.